Welcome to Startup Simplified. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me today. Pleasure, pleasure, absolute pleasure. Uh, Shefani, let's just start with a very quick introduction, right? Uh, I'll then let you do that the way you want to. Uh, you can basically give us a very brief journey of yours in terms of uh, what's been your background and what do you do at Insignia. All right, sure. So I'm Shefali. I'm actually part of the investment team at uh, Insignia Ventures Partners. I actually started out my career in banking first, um, mm-hmm. was a few months, and then I moved to a local fund uh, called Skystar Capital. I uh, was there around three years. So I actually started out uh, in my VC journey quite early, uh, back in 2018, when at that point there were very few fun. Sure. Um, post that, I uh, joined an e-commerce company for around a year, after which, uh, you know, I was... Um, inclined to move back to the VC ecosystem just because I really enjoyed uh, the breadth. So that's more so on uh, my professional career. On the personal front, I actually grew up here in Indonesia, uh, spent around nine years of my life actually in India and Hong Kong, after which, you know, I chose to come back here to uh, pursue my professional career. Yeah. Nice, nice. How does one get into venture capital world uh, out of college? How does that happen? Uh, that's a very good question. I think it's uh, uncommon, I would say. But I was fortunate to have uh, you know, met someone who told me a little bit about the VC ecosystem very early in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And I was very much exposed to the VC ecosystem in India as well, right? Mm-hmm. So at the point of my return, uh, I think we already saw a few unicorns uh, there was uh, Lazada, for example, they got acquired by Alibaba for a billion dollars, yeah. right? So that happened around the same time when I came back. Um, and uh, I knew that there were a few VC funds here. Um, and fortunately enough, I think I knew a few people at the fund, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, at the end of the day, I had it good because I knew what to do in finance. Mm-hmm. And I think VC falls perfectly uh, in that to uh, focuses, right? Uh, how does how does BD how does VC fall in the BD category? You originate your own deal. Oh, you originate your own deal. Your okay, yeah. okay. Which is I would say very uncommon, right? I yeah. think even in banks, a lot of the clients are brought forward by partners. Correct, right? correct. So being, uh, in the VC ecosystem, very early mm-hmm. gave me a high, I would say, sense of ownership. Yeah, mm-hmm. which. Yeah, I, I mean, I I would say I was just very lucky sure, to sure, know the sure. right people at the right time. No, definitely, that always helps. That always helps. I've been itching to ask this to someone over my podcast, uh, and it's very unfortunate, but you are the first female uh, guest on the podcast, uh, and I say it this with complete sensitivity. Okay, uh, why do you think there are so less uh, women? in the VC ecosystem, uh, founders also, to be honest, uh, entrepreneurs also. But let's talk about the VC ecosystem. Why do you feel that it's, it's so male-dominated? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's what's your thought? Um, so maybe I'll zoom out a little bit, right? I don't think it's a VC problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's something that you see across the finance industry, right? And, you know, it's long-dated. Uh, it's not only in Asia. I think you see that even in more developed Correct. Correct. Uh, 
two things, right? One is exposure. I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, females uh, in general, I don't want to generalize, but mm-hmm. they tend to uh, resort to career paths that are more uh, marketing influence or operational influence. That's the trend that we've been seeing, right? But surprisingly enough, that's changing. So in the present day, I think even if you look at the VC ecosystem in Indonesia right now, actually a lot of the like analysts, associates, even to like mid to senior level, now there are a lot more females and we're seeing actually a lot of females rise to the top. Oh, that's amazing. But the journey has been rather slow. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think venture world is also a reflection of the society. Uh, as such, yeah. right? I mean, the participation has been lower in the developing countries either ways. Yeah, uh, yeah fair enough. Makes sense. Uh, before we get into Insignia and the ven- world of venture capital, just very quickly while we are on this topic, mm. if there is uh, someone who's aspiring to venture into the VC world, mm. how do they go about it? Let's say they don't know anyone out there. Uh, let's say someone who's just straight out of college or someone who has had some finance experience, how, how does one go about it? I would uh, recommend them to be very proactive. Uh, you know, even if there are no networks in place yet, you can create those networks, right? Good. By as simple as reaching out via LinkedIn. Networks with venture with people in the venture capital. Yeah, or even, you know, entrepreneurs. Actually, that True. goes a long way, right? Sure. You know, I've had a lot of uh, females itself, you know, reach out to me, uh, asking about my journey, right? So I think we, we are quite lucky because now there's LinkedIn, right? Correct. You can reach out to anybody and everybody. True, true. And if you look. Don't, don't overdo it, please. Don't overdo it. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's, let's talk about Indonesia and, uh, and the market as such, purely from an investment perspective, from a venture side perspective. Uh, so you guys have been active in Indonesia for how long? 2007. 2017, okay, and it's a pretty sizable portfolio which Insignia has in Indonesia, right? Uh, Just let's talk about the journey, right? Uh, You've been with Insignia for two and a half, three years now. No, no, it's not even been two years, it's been a year and ten months. A year and ten months. But you've been in the venture world for a while now, right? So let's let's talk about the journey, Uh, let's say starting 2018 or something like that. Uh, How do you think it has progressed so far? What's... What are the changes which you've seen? A lot has changed. A lot has changed. Give, give me, give me something. Um, I recall when I first joined the industry in 2018, 19, I was looking at like scene stage deals that were valued at one or three million valuation. Hmm. I think that's where you can start, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at the present day situation, although I think the market has largely corrected, the C stage valuation still range up to ten million. That's true. Okay. Yeah, okay. and that's like I'm looking at the lower side, right? Because okay. He wants seed stage happening at 40 million, 50 million valuations. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's a big change, hmm. right? We are seeing uh, that the ecosystem as it matures, we are also pulling in a lot more aspiring entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, they are more inclined to start their own businesses, raising money from VCs, which was very uncommon. I think the education has has uh, has gone up when it comes to entrepreneurship and uh, the access to VC money uh, has gotten better, yes, right? Yes, correct, correct. Um, and th- that's one thing. That's the valuation hmm. part, right? Uh, I think the second is uh, the terms that you see in a shareholder agreement, mm-hmm. share subscription agreements, right? Now they are 
uh, I would say not exactly like what you see in the US, but mm-hmm. they have become more complex. Okay. Right. Uh, they they didn't used to be complex in 2017, 2018. Yeah, but not as much. As complex. Have developed a lot over time as well. Mm. Um, to protect most, you know, the founders and the investors as well, right? Mm. Um, I think lastly, what I've seen is uh, the landscape has changed, right? I mean, what we are investing in 2018, 19 mm. uh, was now is very different, right? I think. Mm-hmm. Back in 2018, 19, we saw a lot of P2P companies. For Correct. Example. 2018 was a year for ride-hailing companies going, uh, becoming unicorns. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but then today, if we fast forward, I think we're seeing a lot more fintech companies in the embedded financing space. Hmm. Correct. Which is more B2B and uh, ease of profitability uh, is better. Yeah. Hmm. I was also quite lucky to see the whole... Um, I would say trend and mm. uh, change in, you know, POS Gen 1, POS Gen 2, mm-hmm. have Gen 3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. All the evolution of uh, various sectors is mm. something that I have been fortunate enough to witness from 2018 to date. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the research, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, it, was, it, was, it was one question which I wanted to ask either ways. Uh, what kind of research generally... Uh, Generally, you do, right? So, for example, let's say you're meeting someone who's in a generative AI space. I'm just saying a very hypothetical yeah. example. The buzz, right? Let's say someone is in a generative AI space and uh, you're meeting the founders. Maybe you reached out to them, they reached out to you. Let's forget that piece. There's a meeting which is happening. So, what kind of research would you go about uh, doing? Fair enough. Um, A lot. Uh, so, I think the first... Let's let's just break down. Like yeah. let's break down like in parts. Uh, oh, what kind of industry research? What kind of founder back profile? Uh, what kind of past companies have been created in that space, or, or whatever more uh, you took? I think the first thing we try to understand is you know how big the market is. Okay. Uh, who are the incumbents in the market? Mm-hmm. In reality, how much of the market is left for this company that's building? Okay. Um. Secondly, is of course looking at comps, right? I think yeah. it's a very common theme that uh, all VCs look into. Uh, you know, looking at what worked in India, oh. what worked in the US, and what were their business models and demographics mm-hmm. at that point in time when they were building, right? And drawing that parallel to Indonesia. Do you think it's it's a it's a fair thing to do? I mean, Indonesia is very very different, yeah. very unique. Okay, we'll come to that. We'll yeah. come to that. Okay, please continue on the research. No, no, that is, uh, I would say business models are very important, right? We, mm-hmm. Really trying to understand how are they making money here versus mm-hmm. making money abroad, mm-hmm. right? You know, for example, I think uh, in uh, US, software is common, you know, Correct. subscription is common. Correct. But in Indonesia, not necessarily that many work, right? Depending on what, you, what industry you're in. Uh, so really understanding the nuances uh, and not being blinded by, you know, what works in India and the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, to work in Indonesia, for example. Mm-hmm. So the research is more so on, yeah, I'm just recapping, market, how big it is, uh, who are the incumbents, you know, maybe what are the regulations that's surrounding mm-hmm. uh, the market, uh, and also what are the local nuances and business models that we've seen. Sure. So really, when we go in uh, meeting a company, uh, you're not entering blindly. Right? Correct. You know what they're building and, Mm-hmm. Who they aspire to? Sure. Yeah. Sure. 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 How about founders? I mean, what what kind of 
what kind of green ticks you look at uh, meet from a founder's profile perspective uh, what do you look at okay i'm going to answer this uh from a very high level explaining yeah uh we like founders that have domain expertise mm-hmm. right uh, or even if they don't have domain expertise the willingness and motivation to learn and learn mm-hmm. and proving to be resilient I think in this kind of climate, you know, it's very mm. difficult, right? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been yeah. speaking to a lot of VCs on this podcast and off camera as well. One word, two words rather, which keep coming back are grit and resilience. Hmm. Okay. Okay. How about academics? How important is academic? And a founder's purpose. Yeah, so that's something that has changed as well. Yeah. Hmm. I think back in two thousand eighteen, nineteen, uh, hmm. we would really. look at the mp yeah uh oh they graduated from hbs that word is good that goes to show you know they can uh they work really hard mm. to get into those universities and mm. they've succeeded academically right uh, i in case in point i think in indonesia if you're building something it's not so much about cv anymore it's about you know operational execution whether you know the right people you know how to navigate the market Correct. all that can be studied through academic I think yeah, I mean you, it it used to be the case I mean in hindsight even when I look what I figured out is that a great university degree actually does not have very high correlation with uh, with being a successful entrepreneur uh, I mean it is good it is good to have one but irrespective of that uh, you might succeed in entrepreneurship with very different attributes Yeah yeah mm-hmm. actually there's a study that Insignia did as mm-hmm. well right um based on the US yeah uh landscape whereby they uh try to understand uh unicorn founders mm-hmm. uh, what proportion of these founders actually went to uh masters Correct. you know any must MBA or any masters for mm-hmm. that matter and what are the other founders that didn't reach unicorn status mm-hmm. uh you know pursuing masters mm-hmm. um actually the percentage is the same yeah close close plus minus 40 40 to 50%. Well, I mean you look it's a great number but we still have to understand this that this part which comes with a good university degree has always had a very easy access to capital. Because of two things, one right, it's it's more of a uh it's more of getting the first check effect and then he or she recommending the peers uh to the venture capital so it becomes a bit easy in terms of network uh you look at india for example it's uh, completely dominated by the iits and the iim uh, uh alumni uh, the reason was very straightforward because uh it became kind of a benchmark in the beginning so the the whole volume is very lopsided uh because i mean and it's pretty fair right i mean the, you create this massive network uh it definitely helps uh but yeah i mean this study is very interesting because you're talking about one side yeah. which is very fragmented uh and the other side which is very united to a large extent yeah. and if they both are in a similar proportion in terms of success uh it's it's a pretty interesting one yeah so okay it goes to show i think it's not only about education right yeah. true 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 uh let's let's talk about indonesia uh How big is really the market? What do you think? What are your thoughts? Uh for uh, which market? 
let's say for example i am building a i am building a d2c brand okay i am building a d2c brand uh, i need to i'm building a mid tier d2c brand let's say i'm building something in wearables uh, earphones uh, smart rings uh, and uh, wearables basically okay uh, and i want to size the market okay how big do you think is the market okay depends i think uh First, we need to categorize, I guess, the uh, larger companies, right? Like that are focusing more so on the mass market, like Xiaomi, for example. You know, what's the average price? Let's say in this case, a wearable, right? Let's mm-hmm. say a smartwatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what's the average price they're going for? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're targeting more so than mass market. So I, I'll give you, I'll give you all the parameters, okay? Yeah, this sounds like a case study. You know? Yeah, let's <laughs> let's do this. Let's do this together, okay? Let's do this together. Let's say we are talking about. Uh, we're talking about only three product categories, okay? Uh, smartwatch, uh, let's say a smart ring, and uh, headphones, right? And uh, everything is in a price range of, uh, let's say, 600 to 900,000 rupiah. Okay? Now, what do you think is the size of the market in the country? Yeah. So... I would categorize uh, the SESABC, basically the income yeah. class population of uh, Indonesia, right? Uh, thank you, Bear. Talking, talking about 600K to 900K, you're definitely not targeting the high income earners. Yes. The high income earners will go for the likes of Apple. Apple, correct. Right? Or even Huawei that has like, you know, pocket Indian smartwatches. Uh, so then in that case, you're looking at maybe the population that's earning at least uh, minimum wage of 4 million, <laughs> right? <laughs> 600K uh, falls quite nicely, used a wearable for <laughs> three years. Um, so you're looking at around, I would say, 80% of the population, right? 80% of, you know, 276 million, right? <laughs> uh, so that's how I would go about it. But in reality... <laughs> Give me that number. Give me that number. Give me the real number. Come down to Indonesia distribution is not easy hmm. right even if you sell a product does not mean you can sell products to all the cities at scale hmm. right you hmm. do have uh the right warehouses hmm. in each city hmm. uh, la- the large distribution network to tap into areas within a city hmm. so even if you target jakarta for example right hmm. maybe you can target uh Thirty to fifty percent of Jakarta's population. If you just start out with Jakarta, okay. So in reality, actually, the it's not as easy to build distribution in mm. Indonesia. And mm. even if you do simple math, eighty percent times two hundred seventy-six million mm. times let's say six hundred thousand, mm. that is your TAM. Mm. Yeah. But your real addressable market would be the based on the geography populations that you're targeting. You you get you must be getting D two C pitches, right? Yes, yes, yes. What kind of TAM generally? What kind of TAM generally people or, or, or aspiring entrepreneurs or founders mention? Then so it's BPC. Uh, I think. Keeping what is BPC? Please. Beauty, mm. uh, personal care. Mm. Uh, that one would be around eight eight to nine billion dollars, right? And mm-hmm. get size. Okay. Uh, but then you have to ask yourself: Are on the eight to nine billion? You know, the instruments have how much of this market? I, I'll I'll t- I'll share something only market size okay yeah. uh, so this is something which we have gone through at Kurtetik so as as naive founders uh, when we started uh, we we're very naive right in terms of market size we we're like okay listen let's do a very simple maths 
Uh, we're talking about a 270 million population uh, as per the last census. Uh, people about the age group of 18 uh, is close to 190 million. Uh, there is a 95% penetration smartphone, 95% uh, internet penetration, 95% uh, literacy rate, uh, read, write, bahasa. Uh, so that becomes close to 150 million. That's the market size. Okay. And uh, well, okay, this sounds fair. Uh, let's start, right? Uh, so problem with starting with that premise is that now you have taken the whole country uh, out there as acquisition, right? So you're going after everyone. And uh, the numbers were absolute nonsense, right? Be it in terms of retention, be it in terms of time spent. And I know this, this is not correct. There's something wrong, right? Uh, we are a media, uh, we are a media company, right? Media technology company. It's the news. It's free uh, what we are offering. But then we had to go back to the drawing board and figure out that hey, listen, we can't keep going this way because we because the numbers are not just not working. So we decided to focus on a segment based on uh, based on their income. Uh, which is a very weird call uh, because we are a media company, but we still went ahead with that. And uh, based on the World Bank data, there are close to 45 million Indonesians who are in a range of monthly income of 10 million rupiah above, right? So these are basically the white collar uh, folks, people like you, Achmat, our camera guy over here, right? So we decided, okay, let's target these, right? So of course your TAM has become very smaller. But once we started doing that, the numbers shot up. I mean, our average time spent every day went from three minutes to nine minutes. Uh, lesser number of people, but they're consuming a lot more content, spending a lot more time. They're very interactive with the app, right? Uh, so we learned our market that way. What is a general rule? Like what advice do you give uh, to, to founders when they are sizing the market? Uh, I understand it depends on industries, but uh, let's just give us a general, general piece of wisdom. I think for us, uh, we would deduce the market based on, again, as I mentioned, geography, right? Um, the next five years, which cities are you targeting? In this case, for, you know, consumer product, <laughs> right? Um, second is in reality, if you're selling your product online, <laughs> which is through e-commerce or, you know, your own website, <laughs> uh, what proportion of that population is actually online, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> if you target more so the tier two, tier three cities, actually, they're still very much offline. So Correct. you can't do simple math there. Correct. Right? So first rule of thumb is population by city. Uh, second is uh, how much of that population is online. Mm -hmm. And third is as simple as what is the average order value and how many times per year are they going to buy your product, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, Correct. Yeah. Plus, at the end of the day, you can't also assume the same population. Mm -hmm. You'll buy, let's say, a wearable every year. Correct. Right? Correct. Uh, so it's important to also categorize uh, the frequency mm -hmm. depending on the product you're selling. I hope that... No, it does, it does, it does. To a, to a large extent, it does. I mean, there's this, there's a lot of lingo out there, but it, it does, it does. Uh, let's just, let's just finish this loop uh, about D2C, right? Uh, 
So there are quite a few companies, uh, quite a few startups, which basically uh, do 90% of their sales on marketplaces, mm. right? Wherein the other 5-10% happens on their own channels, be it a website or, or their app, uh, if they have one, right? Uh, what as as a as an observer, I'm not asking your opinion as 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 a VP investments at Insignia, but as an observer, what do you think? I mean, do they fall into the category wherein they should be raising venture capital money? Which sector are you referring? Let's say, for example, a D two C variables, for example, yeah. which is a fairly straightforward. Let's assume that's a fairly straightforward business. You're sourcing material. You're putting all your brand out there. Uh, in most cases, you're not manufacturing, right? Either you're assembling or you're just adding your branding on top of it. And then you're selling onto the marketplaces. Of course, you have a website, uh, but 90% of your sales is happening on marketplace. That's a very good question. So I I have seen a lot of D2C brands not raise VC money, right? And case in point is they're very profitable. Correct. But at the end of the day, it goes down to what are the entrepreneur's goals? Mm. What are their ambitions? So VC money is like fuel, mm. right? Um, these D2C companies are very much working capital heavy. Yeah. So end of the day, if you want to turn, you know, like let's say $100,000 in year one to $5 million in year two, mm. you wouldn't be able to do that just... Without raising. Without raising, right? Mm. So I would say those that have an ambition to, you know, turn 50 million to 100 million to you know, $500 million in revenue. Those would be the type of profiles that would that would and should raise money from me. Um, even if you take a loan from a bank, you can't take a large sum of loan. Correct. 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 And we see money uh, is equivalent to, in this case, equity, let's say. Correct. Uh, if you have more equity you can raise more debt, yeah. right? So cumulatively, you just in general have more money to infuse into working capital to grow your business. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Okay. We've wandered around a lot uh, so far. Let's talk about Insignia and its investment thesis, right? So what I have realized is that almost every fund which I've met, uh, they have their unique insights, uh, they have their unique uh, assessment, mm. uh, and uh, they have their they have their own processes of checks and balances. Apart from the standard ones, there are other checks and balances which uh, the fund goes through before, uh, let's say, going ahead with the investment. How does a deal flow work at uh, Insignia? Mm. Uh, again, let's let's break it down into each piece, right? Uh, so starting from the first piece, that a founder meets you. Uh, or an analyst, I don't know. Uh, but let's start from there. All right, all right. Maybe I'll give a bit of context sure. right, as well. So Insignia positions itself as an early stage fund. We focus uh, on investments across Southeast Asia. Uh, actually, currently, most of our companies uh, sit in Indonesia and Singapore. Uh, we can invest anywhere between a million to $15 million. So that's a bit of a context on how we position ourselves. Um, when it comes to deal flow, the end-to-end deal flow, uh, so usually, you know, me or my colleague uh, take the first meeting. Um, me. And uh, we have a few, I would say, check boxes, right? Uh, if uh, we do think that the company 
ticks mark on mm. the criteria. So what are these checkboxes? Uh, yeah, so essentially it could be as simple as, you know, how big is the market? Is okay. it at least a billion dollars? Uh, you know, is a founder capable, whether it's uh, through past experience or, you know, does he show potential to you know, keep motivated uh, and learn and unlearn? Um, third would be, you know, growth of the company is very important because we usually invest in Series A now. Um, so how much are you growing in reality? Are you flatlining yeah. and you're flatlining like? So growth is a key metric for us. Um, and, you know, economics, I would say. I see yeah. economics. Uh, lastly, would be value. Last would be valuation. Yeah, but okay. of course not in any rank. Yeah, yeah of course, uh, of course. But yeah, uh, those are the things that we would ideally evaluate at mm. the first meeting itself. Mm -hmm. After which, uh, you know, uh, we can get a sense of whether this can be pushed to IC or not. Oh. Um, so if all uh, checks out, we will push for a second meeting, maybe, you know, with uh, our managing partner directly mm -hmm. or directly with our IC. Sure. At that point, we run due diligence. Mm. How big is the IC? The IC is three people. Three people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they are, who are the IC? I mean, they are, they, are, uh, they are entrepreneurs themselves. Yeah. They are? Yeah, yeah. They all are actually okay. former entrepreneurs. So we have Yinglan, who uh, was uh, previously with Akoya. Mm. Uh, he spent some time in the government as well. And then we have Aaron, who was a co-founder of Caro. We also have Tim, who was a former partner at Sequoia. All three of them either have their own businesses or formerly were entrepreneurs sure. themselves. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we uh, actually pushed the investment through IC, but at that point, uh, we've already run our due diligence. Okay. Due diligence, sure. Right? Sure. So we come into the IC prepared, uh, mm. and uh, for the partners to also have, you know, all the knowledge they need to <laughs> make a decision. Yeah, make a decision. Okay. So we try to move fast. Um, of course, it's not as simple as you know, first IC decision is made. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. How long generally in this market? Eh? How long generally does it take uh, for a deal end to end uh, to complete? I mean, starting from the first conversation to funds transferred, for example, funds wired. How far? It's getting longer. Uh, how long? Give us, give us a average. Uh, I would say around three months. Three months. Mm -hmm. What was this in twenty twenty one? I'd say one to two months. One to two months. Okay. Faster. Uh, but also depends on the stage, yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, we've seen seed stage companies also close in three months, for example. Hey. Maybe say it could be a bit longer. A little bit longer. Because the FDD might take a lot more time. Mm -hmm. And it also goes down to, you know, whether you appoint a uh, third party for FDD, right? Yeah. So the timeline is not only reliant on the funding. What? Correct. Yeah. Uh, just, just for everyone, FDD is financial due diligence. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh Let's let's talk about uh, the founders uh, themselves, right? Uh, before I get into details of what qualities you look at and more, let's uh, let's primarily talk about uh, let's say within your portfolio, and then I'll go into the general uh, uh, segment as well. In your portfolio, how many founders uh, are the second-time founders or third-time founders, and how many are the first-time founders? Just just a, a rough number. I don't have uh, the exact number. Yeah, rough, so, rough. yeah, but I would say bulk of them are first-time founders. Bulk of them are first-time founders. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think this trend has changed? I mean, because earlier what we used to hear mostly is that most of them are like the second-time founders who were raising money or third-time founders who were raising money. But in the last two and a half, three years, you're seeing a lot of first-time founders coming in. Is it true or it's just my observation? Uh, I think there's 
first time founders come here? We are seeing uh, a different type of profile though now, right? Uh, We are seeing a lot of traditional entrepreneurs become uh, VC VC VAT. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So like because a lot of traditional businesses now... Give me an example. Right? Give me an example. So uh, not to name names, but uh, you know... A lot of the agri tech companies that we've invested in, mm-hmm. they, they the, all the founders come from uh, traditional. Oh, nice! Right? So nice. Yeah. A lot more traditional businesses being digitized, and mm-hmm. because of that, I think a lot of the founders naturally so mm-hmm. come from very traditional backgrounds. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But uh, I would say, like uh, all in all, bulk of the founders that we meet are actually first-time founders, if not this profile. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Interesting. Interesting. As a, as a fund, uh, are there any specific areas uh, in terms of verticals or segments which you're like extremely bullish on? I understand you're very agnostic as a fund, uh, but are there any segments which you're like super bullish on? Like for example, when I met Yanglon, he's very bullish on AI, yeah. right? I mean, he's out there, he's like higher PhDs, create models, uh, but uh, is 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 there anything else apart from AI which because AI is out there uh, what apart from AI uh, is the fund very bullish on bullish on I would say fintech 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 uh, AI yes as you mentioned uh, agri-tech as well. okay yeah so I would say and commerce we are seeing a lot more models B2B commerce Okay. Yeah, but uh, all in all, we are still very much sector agnostic, and mm. everyone at the fund, uh, in the investment team, have different uh, sector focuses. Right base. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Uh, let's let's talk about founders. Uh, per se, right? Uh, it's it's very difficult to gauge people in in a few meetings. I mean, people always at their best behavior. Uh, right. Uh. How do you, how do you go about it? I mean, what what are the red top or red flags? Let's talk about red flags, right? I mean, uh, what are the red flags uh, in in a conversation or in a meeting, which is an immediate turn off uh, yeah. for you? Yeah, yeah. For me, I think uh, it may vary again if, sure. if you ask on different people. Sure. Uh, but personally, I think you know when you go in uh, meeting a VC, I would expect. Prepared uh, with? Prepared with, you know, knowing their numbers, knowing hmm. their growth, hmm. knowing their, you know, five-year plan, for example, right? Uh, even if it's on a high level, what do you want to be in five years? Hmm. So those are the things that I would expect them to know hmm. when they come into the meeting, hmm. right? Uh, hmm. So I wouldn't say it's a red flag, but it would uh, it would be a yellow flag yeah. if, you know, the founder itself, uh, let's say, uh, does not know high-level metrics about their business. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What else? That's uh, the first one. Give, give me some psychology out of it. <laughs> Come on. Give me psychology. Uh, what What other red flags? What are the other red flags? Um, I think the second one is uh, not... If you're asking question A, mm. uh, and then the founder responds to question B that was, that was never asked, mm. right? It's that his, I would say he's not, he's either, uh, either the connection's really bad <laughs> or uh, he's not really uh, attentive, if that makes sense. 
say. Sure, sure. Uh, or even if you are not attentive, right? I think it's okay to ask, like, uh, hey, uh, could you repeat that question for me? Sure. Because being attentive is very important. You need to listen to feedback constantly. Mm-hmm. You need to listen to, you know, what your investors want as well. Mm-hmm. What your investors actually want. Correct. 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 Just one health here. Yeah, yeah, but it's a pretty fair one. It's a pretty fair one. Uh, uh, do you hear uh, a response from uh, founders who are pitching to you? Do you hear this response that I don't know? Yes. If you, you hear it often? Yes, yes. I think um, we can't expect founders to know everything. Hmm. We expect founders to know No, but uh, no, yeah, of course. No, yeah. The, the point which I'm making is that is that acceptance uh, very visible uh, that people are willing to see raise up their hand and say that hey listen I don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. it happens common, it comments I mean, um, which yeah. is good yeah. yeah yeah when it comes to fundraise let's say hmm. they know the amount that they're able to fundraise but not necessarily the valuation right hmm. and this also comes down to whether they are first time founders or second time founders mm-hmm. sometimes they don't know what's the price in the market for their company true uh, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, I don't know. Uh, what do you think about this? Sure. That is good. That's good. Okay. I think we are towards the end of uh, the chat. Let's uh, let's let's hear your thoughts on uh, some verticals, right? Some segments in Indonesia. Uh, so you can do a rapid fire kind of, uh, kind of a thingy. Uh, uh, influencer economy. What do you think? No, interesting uh, sector. Okay. Like, uh, yeah, I think it's on the rise, clearly, right? Uh, Indonesia is a destination for influencers. We've seen, you know, TikTok influencers actually make a famous in uh, Eclipse. <laughs> and you start to question your career. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, um, so for the influencer economy, I think if we backtrack to like maybe five years ago, hmm. uh, Influencers were existent, but they were more so, I would say, actors, actresses, you know, that has a public image already established. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now we are looking at like a lot of different types of influencers. We are looking at key opinion consumers, right? Mm -hmm. Key opinion leaders. Um, And it could be like uh, even mega influencers, but also very micro influencers who have like 1,000 followers. So this economy mm. was non-existent before because this sure. economy only grew with mm. social media. True, true. Right? Yeah. Uh, so I myself, I am personally uh, inclined to meet a lot of companies that fall into this economy. Mm. But the key question that we always ask is, you know, at the end of the day, uh, how big can you be? And uh, are you just, are you better than a better operated agency, right? Yeah. The influencer economy was very, very crowded with a lot of agencies. Correct. So now we're looking at a lot of uh, digital platforms that are operating like agencies, but providing more added value. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the question comes down to, you know, how big of a business can this be? If you just focus, let's say, in a market like Indonesia. Yeah. Um, and can you actually be monetizing from some of the transactions that it, these influencers make? I think sure. that is very interesting. If you can make money of the transactions that the influencers are making, mm-hmm. inevitably it's a big business because we know influencers that are making over a billion in IDR. Yeah, yeah. We went through one live stream. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But mm. yeah, then that's that's uh, my view in a nutshell. Interesting. Interesting. How about SaaS? 
process. Uh, fast uh, adoption has been low in Southeast Asia. Low compared to US. Compared to US, correct. Um, but SaaS, I see, is uh, either you, you're a global first company, mm. uh, able to crack SaaS quickly, mm-hmm. or SaaS becomes a supplementary uh, you know, model to your core business. Mm. That's what we are seeing. Uh, but we like SaaS models. We really like them. we constantly hunting for SaaS companies as well. Because unit economics are very healthy, right? The Correct. path to profitability is very clear. Very clear. But I think, uh, sorry, but it, there has been a massive lowdown in investments in SaaS companies in the last few quarters. Uh, and I, I know quite a few SaaS founders uh, to good friends. And uh, everyone's been echoing this uh, sentiment that uh, the whole deal flow has uh, gone pretty sour. Uh, why do you think so? Um, it could be because of the market right now, right? If we look at public comms for SaaS itself, they've mm. dropped yeah. significantly. I think we're looking at single-digit price to sales, right? Uh, still north of five, but uh, you know, at one point it used to be 20, 30 times price to sales. Correct. Right? Uh-huh. Correct. So I think that. And uh, secondly, I think Southeast Asia has tried a lot of... Uh, SaaS models, right? We've seen a lot of companies establish SaaS businesses, but uh, the uptake has not been, or the conversion in this case has not been as high as common as as fintech companies. Conversion to, you know, billion dollar businesses, for example, or, you know, even multi-million. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Uh, How about P2P lending? P2P lending. Okay, before you... uh... So in my experience, at least in Indonesia, it should not be called P2P lending anymore. It should be called banking channeled money to peer lending. Because most of the companies, they're either they're basically borrowing from the banks mm. and then lending it out. So uh, the one P from P2P is missing for sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay now your thoughts. I think uh, for P2P itself, uh, in I'm speaking for Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're all talking Indonesia. Yeah. The ecosystem and, uh, you know, you're already seeing uh, category leaders mm-hmm. in the P2P space, right? Uh, so for growth stage companies, I mm-hmm. think P2P would be a very interesting sector, sure. right? But for early stage companies, these P2P companies are really far too expensive for us to afford. And mm-hmm. You know, they are companies with very deep pockets, right? Correct. So uh, it, there's more risk to investing in an early stage P2P company mm-hmm. unless they have a different angle mm-hmm. or a different entry point, right? Mm-hmm. So we are seeing a lot more vertical-based financing solutions. So it could be P2P, but they're targeting a specific vertical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they become really good mm-hmm. at underwriting a client, let's say in construction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how you look at a client is also different, yeah, uh, based on each industry, the way you KYC, KYB sure. uh, a company. Yeah. Sure. So that one, I think that that segment is just rising and it, mm-hmm. uh, it's still very nascent. Nice. Sure, sure, sure. How about EVs and sustainability-based other uh, offerings mm-hmm. as a market, in Indonesia especially? Yeah. 
Yes, yes. So we are uh, seeing a lot of companies being established in the EV space. Mm-hmm. We have yet to make an investment there. Uh, but it is uh, one of the sectors that I think will take a long time to build. So it's not uh, a company that you can see turn a billion dollar in five years. Mm. Right. I think uh, just like, you know, a lot of D2C companies, because of uh, the market dynamics, mm-hmm. I think it will take like at least like 10 years, maybe sure. to see a big company, unless, unless regulation really regulation pushes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's something as a sector that we are looking at uh, and we feel constantly evaluating companies. Uh, how about other sustainability uh, companies, be it, uh, be it sust- sustainable fashion uh, or uh, waste management? Uh, what are your thoughts on those companies? Yeah, we've been looking at them as well. I think waste is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah, uh, those models as well. Um, I think uh, end of the day to become a big business in the waste management industry, luckily enough, and they start in the right destination. Yeah. Yeah. So we've also been looking, but the um, I think the price to sales multiples are not as favorable as that. Hmm. Correct. I think that's something that we constantly evaluate internally mm-hmm. on how we can uh, see an expansion and the. Uh, public market multiples in yeah. five to 10 years. Hmm. Uh, but as mentioned, I think we're quite agnostic and this is one of the sectors that we've been looking at as well. Sure, sure. Uh, let's let's quickly talk about valuations, hmm. right? Uh, so two questions on valuation. Number one, to what happens when a startup raises money at a very crazy valuation? like it happened in 2021 uh, or even early 2022. Uh, what happens when they raise money at a very crazy valuation? That is number one question. Second, what should be the valuation? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll start with the first one that you mentioned. Uh, so 2021 was a bull run. Yeah. So, you know, case in point to your question, we saw a lot of companies raising at very inflated valuations. Uh, but that's also a factor of a lot of dry powder Correct. in the market, right? Um, the good thing is, you know, uh, at that point, founders have a lot more cash and bank yeah. to experiment, right? If model A doesn't work out, mm. they can try model B in one year, model C in second year. Sure. Uh, so it's a blessing in disguise for yeah. entrepreneurs, but mm. it's a double-edged sword mm. because end of the day, if they run out of the money, mm-hmm. then they need to go out of the market fundraise again mm. and let's say if they did raise at inflated valuations of 20 30 million mm. uh, will you be able to get your metrics up to speed to make sense of that valuation no. yeah. Yeah. Um, so again it depends on the amount raised I think if you're raising like 20 million that's mm. a different story yeah you have uh, yeah. so much dry powder to expire sure right? uh, sure but founders have become very realistic. I think now, you know, market has corrected and still correcting. Mm-hmm. So we've seen a lot of down rounds happen. Well, you've seen already yeah. a lot of down rounds happen. Yeah. Um, second question uh, on how to value a company, right? Yeah. For us, uh, specifically, we really look at the public comps, right? Okay. How much are companies in the public market trading at? 
Because now exit is so important. Mm. And when you think about exit, it's either through, you know, M&A mm. uh, or IPO. True. Right? Um, and on the IPO path, uh, it's important for us to see at what valuation they can exit. Mm. Um, hence, that's why we look at a lot of public comps mm-hmm. uh, to give, give us comfort on how to price a company now and how much the company can be in the next five to 10 years. Mm. Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, sounds sounds fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I think I think I think we're good. Uh, I think we covered a whole lot of aspects. Do you want to talk about anything which you feel we should have spoken about but we missed? Or maybe from uh, your perspective, you're a founder yourself, right? Uh, what are the things you know you would always ask PCs, but you know there's no readily available information sure. publicly, right? Sure. So, okay. So one thing which which we we took a, we took this call uh, when we started our fundraise uh, that for pre we are doing a pre seed round and we took this decision that we will not do a VC round for pre seed. Okay. Uh, and we figured this out very early. Uh, uh, a lot of VCs were definitely interested in having a chat, but it was more of a uh, more of a meeting recorded in their books uh, kind of a meeting so uh, so we took this call that hey listen we'll meet everyone we'll definitely meet everyone not saying no to anyone but every meeting will go with the mindset that okay we are going to raise this through angels or networks the pre-seed round uh, second fortunately we, we valued ourselves very realistically uh, so the angel rounds were very easy to trickle in. Also in this market, what we have realized is, uh, especially if it's pre-seed, right? I mean, I'm not talking about seed. Uh, so pre-seed, very early, the first few checks. I think it's become very crucial that you onboard angels who can bring real value, uh, be it in terms of product, tech, data, uh, connections, Apart from money. So my theory is, uh, and we executed this, right? My theory is very straightforward. I want to have at least 10 such angels whom I can neither afford to hire or I can afford to pay them as consultants, but I want their services or expertise. Uh, so actually, we kept, we handpicked our angels. I want this guy. I want him to help us with our product. Or I want this guy to help us with our analytics. Uh, it's purely because of the market dynamics, right? I mean, if it would have been, let's say, late 2020, early 2021, we might have gone in a different direction, uh, right? I mean, that's what happens in a bull market, right? I mean, uh, we've seen companies raising 5 million in pre-seed and then hiring people from McKinsey and BCG and uh, setting up these large teams. Uh but the market is very different now. The dynamics is extremely different. Uh, so even when I keep meeting uh, other founders who are just starting, my suggestion to them is that go for friends and family rounds. Uh, look out for angels who can really bring value. Uh, get some traction and then go for uh, a VC money. Uh, because you saying three months... Uh, the others on the on the podcast have also said three to four months. 
But the market reality is six to nine months right now, even for seed rounds is what I'm seeing. Uh, it for, I'm to, again talking from the point of conversation. Uh, for the for the startup to close that round, it is taking right now six to nine months uh, to close that round. Uh, so make sure that uh, your burn is as little as possible and uh, your runway is enough for not to die uh, right while you get that uh, venture capital money uh, coming in it's uh it's good if you're pre-revenue yeah. you're uh, still ideating to get some of these strategic angels on board because they can also be your son correct right correct uh, but i don't think any entrepreneur should shut doors no absolutely not. absolutely not what one thing I would recommend all founders do is, you know, put yourself out there, right? Yes. Because if you don't put yourself out there, you won't know what... Good. It'll all be based on he say, she say. True. Right? I mean, um, look, that's what we are yeah. doing over here with this podcast, right? I mean, uh, no, I completely agree with you. I mean, that is something which we've decided internally. We don't say no to anything. Uh, like, let's meet. If nothing, we'll learn something and know a new person. If you're not busy. If you're busy. Of course. <laughs> and uh, look, the other part is that you you don't need all your founders in every meeting. Yeah. Uh, super. Like, for example, in our case, we are very clear that, okay, uh, either me or Danis will attend uh, investor meetings or any uh, prospective fundraising events uh, uh, or be it networking sessions. Because the priorities are very clear, right? That he listen, priorities and responsibilities. That, okay, while there is one founder who is taking care of the operations, one's taking care of the tech, the ones out there shouting about the brand, well, that's me, uh, meeting uh, investors. Uh, so that is very clear. Uh, again, I believe a lot of, I see this often, right? A lot of founders still get very, very swayed away with, Fundraising uh, very early in their uh, uh, in the in the startup's life, I think it's it's again a double-edged sword. Uh, especially in Indonesia, you never have a bad meeting. There's always a good meeting. Every meeting is a good meeting. Yes, and it give it can give a false sense of uh, expectation, false sense of hope that money is gonna come in, uh, because you generally don't have bad meetings. I mean, I think it's. I think most people are very polite, right? So meetings are always good. Uh, but got to be careful. Got Money in is money in. Uh, what's money in the bank is money in the bank. Uh, rest, everything is out there on paper, uh, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, accurate. I think uh, founders have to look to protect themselves as well. True. Uh, to ensure that, you know, in the next six months, if you're still burning, uh, how do you make sure that even post-term sheet, uh, if all of a sudden, that term sheet gets pulled out. What happens? Right? Uh, and this is happening a lot. Yeah, this has happened a lot uh, in this market. Sure. Because I think UE is very important. So that's yeah, one thing that, you know, founders should pay attention to. Uh, being able to ensure, not on a P&L basis, but, you know, take into account, let's say, if you take financing, right? Correct. Take into account the interest that you pay to these financing companies. I yeah. also factored into the unit economy. True, true. Right? Which I think Five years ago, maybe this was not a co-focus. Sure. Okay. At least on, uh, you know, 
previous uh, pr- prior to OPEX, you're making a dollar. You know, you're making, mm. a, you're making uh, something out of the dollar that you burn. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Okay, last question. Uh, I think we missed this one. Uh, how important is uh, a startup to be post revenue to raise money from Insignia? Is it mandatory? I uh, in most cases, yes, uh, because now we focus on Series A stage companies, and at mm. that point, I think it's Series A. It's fair, yeah. Metric, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I don't want to say a yes, hundred percent confidently because sure. we've also seen companies like you know Figma and the US. They yeah. were not making any money mm. for I think around two to three years mm. when they made their first dollar. But at that point, they already raised a few rounds, right? Mm. Mm. Open AI for that matter, right? Mm. Six years. Zero revenue. Perfect. This was this was an absolute pleasure. It was a breeze chatting with you, Shefali. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, guys, I'll share the details of Shefali, uh, LinkedIn and everything in the description. Aspiring entrepreneurs can reach her. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.